Hello and welcome to Achievement Oriented, the Ringer's video game podcast. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com and so is my colleague on the other line. His watch is almost ended. It's Jason Concepcion. Hey, Jason. Let's go. Let's go. Listen, Winston is back in the meta, Overwatch fans. Let's go. (laughs) You have to uh, acquaint yourself with Doomfist. Oh man, I can't wait. Yeah, I know that your gaming time has been extremely limited lately, as has your leisure time of all kinds because (laughs) of binge mode, but you are mere days away as we speak from finishing binge mode. And on behalf of the internet, thank you for your sacrifice. I know that you and Mal are on your last legs and your your gaming has been reduced to five to 10 minute spurts of Mario Kart. And a fine game, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) Well, soon that will be over and I know you'll still be the maester and you'll still be busy giving Game of Thrones knowledge to the masses but hopefully you'll have a little more time in your life but podcast came out great so thank you and congrats well thank you to everyone who's listening yeah So we will have more time to talk about games we're playing soon, but on today's episode, we are cramming in a few guests that we are excited to talk to. So later in this episode, we're going to talk to an economist who will weigh in on a study that just came out that purports to show that games are responsible for a reduction in the workforce participation of particularly young male gamers. The thesis is that games have gotten so good that no one wants to work anymore. And there are some skeptics about this conclusion, so we're going to bring on economist Ernie Tedeschi to tell us about them. Before that, we're going to talk to our colleague, Claire McNear, another Ringer writer making her first appearance on this podcast, and she's going to talk to us about Pokemon Go, which celebrated its first anniversary on Thursday. And before that, we are going to talk about a new service called Gamer Sensei which is attempting to make people who aren't good enough at games better at games. We both need it. So we are going to get right to that. So when most people experience frustration in video games, they rage quit, they scream into their headsets, they turn into trolls. Few people do something productive with that anger, but our guest today, William Collis, did channel that rage and frustration in a productive direction, and he co-founded a startup called Gamer Sensei, and it's a service that matches players who want to get better at video games with coaches who want to help them get better at video games while making a little cash in the process, and he is with us now. Hi, William. Hey guys, it's a it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for being here. Yeah, give us the the origin story. What game were you bad at, and in what way were you bad what, at it? Man, what game was I bad at? Like, there's only one. Um, <laughs> what was what was the one that pushed you over yeah. the edge? So the 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 story of Gamer Sensei, what kind of you know got really the impetus behind the business was Heroes of the Storm, funnily enough. So I actually really love that game. It's uh, actually probably my favorite MOBA. I'm sure all the League and Dota fans right now are going to kill me. Right now, <laughs> I, I think I think Heroes of the Storm is great, particularly. It wasn't so good when it was an alpha and beta, but now that it's World War 2.0, I think it's an amazing game. Anyway, neither here nor there. So I, I was playing on sort of, uh, I would say, a very amateur team for that. You know, we thought we were probably much better than we were. And... I was the worst player on that team. And so, you know, every night we would go and queue up for our games and have loss after loss after loss. And one night I was taken aside by my teammates and they said, William, we love you. You know, you're a sparkling personality, but you are awful at this video game. (laughs) And it's no fun to play when we lose all the time. So, you know, we've got to, we're going to find somebody else and, you know, you can still, you know, I guess you can still chat on Discord or whatever, but, you know, let's go our separate ways. <laughs> and I said to them, guys, no, 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 you know, I loved it. It was, it's the best when you have a group of players that you're playing with and, you know, having fun. I said, no, guys, you know, give me a chance. Let me, let me try to get better. And so I did everything I could to try to get better, right? So I was on you know, YouTube and Twitch watching streams and videos, and I was on subreddits and all this stuff, and just like nothing was working. And finally, I just, I kind of had this moment where I was like, you know what? When I wanted to learn piano in elementary school, I got a piano teacher, right? Mm-hmm. When I wanted to learn soccer in you know, high school, I got a soccer teacher, right? A soccer coach, right? Like, you know, I'm just going to get somebody, you know, I'm going to try to find somebody somewhere who can watch me play and tell me what I'm doing wrong. And so I ended up finding somebody in a message board who jumped into a game with me. And it was just like instantly transformative. You know, I was 
basic mistake there's like basic and advanced things in that game i was doing wrong and literally in the first five minutes i was like oh my god this is making me so much better and as soon as i kind of finished that session i i have also a bit of addition to being a, a hardcore gamer um, I have a bit of a business background you know i've had a number of professional jobs and went to business school and things and i just said this this needs to be a business and i looked and there was nobody really doing it and i said well I am going to be the person to, to do this. And so together with my co-founders, Rohan and JJ, you know, we started Gamer Sensei and here we are today on the podcast. Um, you use a, let's say I'm, so I'm, I want to get better at Overwatch. The mm -hmm. new meta just came out. Now all of a sudden, uh, Roadhog, which is my main, is not the same anymore. So now I want to switch I, to Winston. I know we're all upset about that one. So. <laughs> I, I, as a Winston person, I love it. I, I got to play like, six straight hours over the July 4th weekend, and I really enjoyed it. Anyway, um, so I, I log into your site, and how does it match me with a coach? Yeah, so process, you come to Gamer Sensei, you want to get better at what happens. So it's really simple, honestly. You sign in, you create a profile, and you tell us as much about you as sort of, you know, you're interested in sharing. Um, but at a minimum, you know, we like to try to get information from you, particularly like, for example, for Overwatch, your battle on that because that allows us to get some additional information on the back end about you know, your scores and stats in the game. And then we have a matching algorithm that's actually patent pending that looks at sort of everything we've known about you to date. And as we get more lesson history and other things from you, it learns and gets smarter. But we basically look and we run this and we say, okay, of the time you want your lesson, you pick the time you want it, right? Of the character you want, because we have self-selection fields. So you can choose, I want to learn Roadhog or I want to learn Zenyatta, whoever it is. Um, we run that and we give you a curated list of coaches who are going to be the best for you to improve. And it's not only matched to you, but actually we're not an open platform at Gamer Sensei. It's not like anybody who signs up can become a coach. We have thousands of applicants, but we screen them really extensively. So everybody on the platform has been vetted to be not only really good at the game, but also a really good instructor. And so we give you this curated list. You choose the coach who's good for you. You link up in game or over chat or whatever, hop into a lesson, and you are improving. And so when you get into the game, then is the player setting goals? Is the teacher setting goals? Is it just a sort of, I want to be better at this game, or is it, I want to be better at this one specific aspect of this yeah, game? Yeah, that's a great question. And this is partly sort of the beauty of personalized coaching is it's personalized to you and your experience. So, you know, if your goal is, you know, I want to hit Grandmaster, we can help you with that. There's a set of exercises and structures you need for it. If your goal is, I want to one day be a pro gamer and I'm going to go the long shot and try to land on Dignitas, we can help you with that. Or if your goal is, look, you know, I just, I'm just tired of dropping my quick matches, you know, yeah. I just want to get a little bit better with, you know, Zarius. So I'm not, you know, we, we service all skill levels, right? But a typical lesson, what happens, the coach will, you know, start with a gamer. They'll talk to them about what they're trying to achieve. They'll watch them play a little bit, whether it's replay or live play. And they'll sort of look at what the gamer's strengths are, but also what their weaknesses are. And then they'll start to suggest targeted improvements or things that they can do differently to shore up those weaknesses. And they'll also give suggestions and advice and strategies to augment the player's strengths. And this can be both in-game and even out-of-game. So it can be as simple as, you know, do you have the settings in the game configured correctly? Is your mouse held in such a way that you're not going to give yourself carpal tunnel if you're mm. playing four hours of Overwatch every day, you know? So um, it's a lot. But again, I, I really want to stress it really is tailored to the individual. So... You know, it's not like there's one right way to do this. It's just like if you were to work with a baseball coach and, you know, they're helping you improve at, you know, the exact how they're looking at how you pitch and figuring out you're twisting your wrist a little bit long and correcting that for you. It's the same here. The coach pays attention to you, your individual needs and gives you what you need to get better for your goals and your aims. You can be a, obviously can be a great player at whatever your chosen game is, but maybe not necessarily a great teacher of that game. Uh, what are the things that keep players from being able to transfer that skill into a teachable structure? Yeah, that, that's a great question. That's actually one of the most important things about why Gamer Sensei curates our coaching community. Because there are a lot of people who are really good at games, but that does not mean <laughs> you are you know, a good person to teach others. It's sort of like I like to say any random like, you know, Xbox Live pickup game, you wouldn't want, you know, those guys to be your coach on the other end of the line. So we curate extensively. And like the biggest differences that matter are one is are these people who are able to structure their thoughts and clearly communicate 
and describe abstract reasonings to somebody who's you know newer or coming to understand advanced concepts or other things, right? So it's really like, are they a clear communicator? Do they do a nice job of crisply explaining what you need to do and get better? Two is, you know, are they good at motivating you, right? Because that's a huge right. piece of this. You know, getting better at games, it's not just about knowing mechanically what you need to do. It's giving you the motivation and the inspiration. Like, think of your best teachers in college or high school. You know, they made you excited to come to class. That's a characteristic we look for in the coach. And finally, you know, the ability to structure the learning. So it's not just, okay, on this map you should go left, but then you should go right. Okay, they're there on the top left, shoot, right? It's breaking things down in such a way that a progression for learning and improvement can be structured for the player. And they're not being told things that are too advanced for them, but at the same time, they're not being told things that are too basic or repetitive. And how do you audition or apply to be a coach? How do you screen these people? Is there a simulated lesson of sorts? Or Yeah, so it's it's a pretty elaborate process, but it starts with you go to the Gamer Sensei website, and we have a little apply to be a sensei button, you click that. And then you fill out an application and we start screening you there. We read about you. We check your qualifications. We might follow up and ask for additional information. Then there's a live interview with either someone at Gamer Sensei or more and more we use what we call our Master Sensei, who are our best coaches who now help us out by interviewing sort of the next generation of people who want to teach. There might be mock lessons where we track you with a sample student or even another coach and get feedback. Um, we score the applicant based on all sorts of these you know, different uh, fields and processes. And ultimately, if we decide to accept you, you're on the platform. But really, the process doesn't end there because we continue to monitor the lesson reviews from the students, um, rebook rates, other things to assure that there's a really, really high quality bar. Mm-hmm. And who have you found these coaches to be? Are they pros in some cases? Are they actual coaches in some cases who are kind of moonlighting on yeah. Gamer Sensei? Or? I, I mean, it, it's sort of, it's pretty crazy, but it, I mean, it's sort of all of the above, right? Certainly they're top tier pros. Like if you want to get a lesson from Prawley in League of Legends from H2K, he's on wow. Gamer Sensei, wow. come on, go book him. He's awesome, you know? But you know, for example, we had a student, uh, Remo, who we trained from, you know, relatively novice level to represent, I think it was Switzerland for the Hearthstone Championships. And his coach is a guy called FKI Shadow, who you've never heard of. You know, he's, uh, he's an amazing teacher, first and foremost, but you've never seen him in any tournament results or anything yet. He trains someone from the basic levels to the pro teams because he's just naturally a gifted instructor with a huge passion for esports and a really analytical mind. So, you know, it really does run the gambit. And I think, again, that's sort of the beauty of a service like Gamer Sensei is we're able to collect all those guys in one place and make them available to you. I, you know, it's back in the day, the mid aughts, I almost did something like this with uh, one of the guys from Straight Rippin, who was like a Halo clan at that time, going to take lessons for them. Um, and obviously, I mean, you, you have a number of games that you support on Gamer Sensei, and there's a wide range of them from Counter Strike to Overwatch to Heroes of the Storm and MOBAs to FPSs. But I know this is like generalizing. What are the thing? What are the common mistakes of low-level mistakes of just like the average gamer might make in a MOBA or FPS that keeps them from getting to the next level? Yeah, I mean, so it, it's a really interesting question. Before I answer it, I'll do my best answer. I want to say, I mean, these games are so different, right? Like the yes, common mistake yes. in Hearthstone is completely different from the common mistake right. in Counter-Strike, right. right? Like you can't compare. But I, I think kind of what you're asking is sort of give me an example of something you see that's easy and tangible. And so I'll give an FPS example for that. It's, you know, again, it's, I think it's the most visual one, how you hold your mouse, right? Because I think a lot of people, when they hold their mouse, they actually rest their wrist or their arm on the table. And it slightly elevates their hand, which means when they move the mouse left to right, they're actually going in an arc. I don't know if you can kind of visualize this along with me. But that means every time you're readjusting your aim, not only is your game going left to right, it's also going up and down. Well, that's really bad, right? You want to, if you're lined up on the headshot, you want to stay lined up on the headshot as the guy's running around the corner. And so just elevating your elbow, for example, can make a huge difference in your accuracy. And that's, you know, I mean, again, it's one example. It's not true for everybody, but that's a simple common mistake that people might be making in an FPS. And what about tactically? And I don't know, let's say MOBAs maybe, or, you know, Heroes of the Storm, if you want to concentrate on the game that made you seek help, what was sort of the the failing that you had or that a lot of casual or or amateur or aspiring players have that separates them from the pros? 
So I'll talk about my failing. My I had many failings in Heroes of the Storm, and I'm sure somewhere my, my teammates will be listening, nodding their head like, "Yes, he was a disaster." <laughs> um, but you know, I'll talk about that game, and then maybe I'll give a more general example because I realize not everybody plays Heroes of the Storm as much as I wish that might be the case. So you know, for Heroes, the, the mistake I was making was rotations. You know, Heroes is very much an XP-driven game. You always have to have a hero in the lane to soak. And that you really want to be causing a lot of lopsided lane pressure, at least particularly in the patch in time I was learning. And that even more so than, say, a League or a Dota. And I was just completely misrotating. You know, I was overextending when I thought I could pressure down structures like towers or forts. I was rotating on bad timing, so I was getting caught by enemies in the bush, <clears throat> right? I just, my movement on the map was totally wrong. And so, you know, I got great advice and lessons. Like, one thing, don't be scared to rotate lanes by going back through the base. Like, yes, it's a little bit slower, right? Because you have to go back through your wall, in, you know, inside your, inside your base, go up or down you know, from mid lane to top or bottom, and then come back out again. Yes, it's slower, but if you're playing a really vulnerable hero like, say, Kael'thas, it's better that you're a little bit late and your team has to wait a little bit longer to engage than you get ganked in the bush and now you're on a 4v5 team fight, right? Mm -hmm. And then a more general example, you know, I, I think just kind of same thing is Hearthstone because I also, Hearthstone is a game very near and dear to my heart. And, you know, a common mistake we see a lot in Hearthstone is people misevaluating um, the control versus aggro nature hmm. of the matchups, right? Like, you know, even if you're playing, we say this all the time, people are playing a control deck. Like, this is a little few patches ago, but like imagine a classic control warrior with a lot of armor and card draw, right? And they're playing against another type of control deck. And they think because they're control, they want to push things to the late game as much as they can. But in a control versus control matchup, somebody is favored in the long game. And just because you're control doesn't mean it's necessarily you. And so recognizing based on the early plays that your opponent is making, the early plays you're making, how you're having to expend your resources, recognizing if even though you're playing control deck, you need to be taking an aggressive role in the game. Mm -hmm. So you're supporting eight games currently. How did you arrive at those? Some are obvious and some are maybe a little less obvious. And, and what are the characteristics of a game that you think makes a good fit for this service, aside from just having a built-in audience? And yeah. what are the most common requests you get for, for games that you're not currently offering coaching for? So it, it's a little bit embarrassing, but I'll give you guys the honest answer, which is in the beginning, we picked the games I liked. <laughs> like, uh -huh. that was the truth, you know, because you have to start somewhere, right? You're a startup. And I was like, I know Hearthstone. I know, you know, um, here's the storm because that I know League, you know, a little bit. Like, we're going to start, you know, basically there, right, with games that I'm passionate about and I can be knowledgeable about. Today, you know, we, we evaluate the titles a little bit more rigorously, <laughs> um, we look at viewership, we look at other factors, like how coachable we think the game is. Um, and I can say more about that if you guys are interested. Um, but we are gonna you know, have more than eight titles on the platform. We're already in plans to expand to you know, several others before this year's end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd be interested in, in hearing you say how you evaluate the, the coachability of a game. Yeah, so I, I think a, a good example here is you need to understand the trait. You know, like any, any good game has a little attribute of luck, and a little and a lot of skill, right? Yeah. And you just need to look at in that trade-off, is this a game that's really, really driven by luck? Or is it a game that's really, really driven by skill? And when you look at the type of skill it's driven by, is it a game that's driven by mechanical skill or strategic skill? And the games that are best coachable or most coachable have a low element of luck and a high element of the strategic skill. And you know, you might think a game like Counter-Strike, for example, there's a huge mechanical skill element, but it's a checkbox, right? Um, and there's actually lots of cool, you know, kind of tricks and cheats you can do to actually make your aim better than it actually is. If you're strategically good and you know the person's coming around the corner in the top left, right? Like, you know, you know they're coming to bombsite B, you know where they're coming from. Like, you, you don't have to be a great aimer to have your cursor waiting for where people are coming. And so we tend to, like I said, look for games that are low on luck and high on the strategic skill base, which thankfully is most esports, um, or at least most good ones. Especially games where there are multiple champions and or heroes. Something that comes up a lot in lobbies and games like that where you need to build a team comp in an intelligent way is people just don't want to switch. Uh, oh, yeah. How do you tell a person... I mean, how, how often does this come up in coaching? How do you tell a person that, you know, actually you're, the, the style of play that you want to play doesn't fit the characters that you want to use? 
how do you broach that? How do you bring that up to a person? Yeah, I mean, that, and that's a really interesting point, and that is something that is reasonably common, right? Um, particularly because I, I sort of see it a little bit, we see it a different way, which is people look at what the, the pros play, you know, the top 1% of 1% of 1% in the world, and they're like, oh, at Proston X can pull off this crazy build that's a glass cannon that requires perfect timing, and, you know, and the truth is, like, that may be the best build for your character, but at your skill level, and where you're playing and what you're trying to improve on, don't build your guy that way, right? Don't build to mimic, you know, Dunk Train's Muradin and, you know, the finals of the, you know, here's the Storm World Championships, right? That's not, that's not how you should play that character. You know, you should go for a solid, tanky, or regular build because at your level, and by the way, with the, with the support you're getting from your teammates, with a, even if you think you're the most amazing person, with a healer who's alongside you who's going to miss 10 or 20% of their heals, you can't run those perfect builds, right? So it happens all the time that coaches sort of have to look at a player and say, you know what, that hero or that build you're doing isn't quite right for you where you are right now. But this is also the beauty of personalized coaching because then the student gets a choice, right? They can say, you know what, I really want to learn this build. This is the character I want to play or this is the way I want to play this character. And the coach can say, okay, I will make you as good as I can with that build. At the same time, the coach can offer alternatives and say, you know, you really, you're so, you love flanking so much, but, you know, you're always getting caught out as Genji. You should try Tracer and Overwatch, right? You'll get a lot of that same flanking gameplay, but you get a lot more escape options, you know, and they'll be able to push the student to maybe something else that they would like and enjoy more once they'd spent time and actually, honestly, help them appreciate the new character and the new build in a way they couldn't before. You know, these games are designed to be fun. A lot of times, if you don't like a hero or a champion right. or a build, it might be because you're trying to force to play them the way the developers aren't intending. And what are the most common goals or aspirations that you hear? Are people mostly just wanting to be good enough to play with a certain group of friends like you were? Is it more about personal pride and not embarrassing yourself in ranked matches? Is it about actually wanting to maybe enter the pro scene someday? Obviously, it's probably all of the above, but what are the, the most common goals or items on the player's wish list? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it really is all of the above. We have all of those people from people who are, you know, literally just new to the game and don't want to spend, you know, 20 hours, you know, learning the wrong thing. They just want to get the cheat sheet to starting out well to, you know, yeah, people who are literally, I'm going to go for, you know, I was just talking to a gamer last night who's trying out for pro teams in Singapore. And he's like, I need to get this edge to make sure I nail my Overwatch audition, you know? So it really is all levels. But I, I would say sort of what's typical, what unites these guys is they play games is a lot and it's the primary form of entertainment. So they're really sort of like me. You know, I, when I go home at night and I want to chill out, I sure I watch a little bit of TV, you know, a little bit of Netflix, whatever, but I, I love to game. That's what I do. And, you know, you want to get more out of your time spent with the game. These yeah. competitive esports titles feel better when you win. And, you know, a lot of people today, it's not like I can buy, you know, an ultra kill pack in League of Legends that, let, that lets me wipe the opposing team. There's not a lot of good ways in the game itself for me to kind of get that edge. And so... Today, people buy $3,000 gaming PCs, and does that really help? I mean, it certainly makes you feel better when you have cool glowing lights. I know I love looking at like my Alienware stuff or my Razer stuff, but arguable if it really takes me that next level in gaming. And so what we really help is people get, people who love the games just get more, enjoy their experiences more with it, and in particular, get those victories, because that's what people want. So so what are you playing when you, when you want to feel good about your abilities as a gamer what's the game what's your go-to right now it's so tough because i was you know, i was joking with you guys earlier i think when we were testing the audio that like i have my one main game but then i have those five other games i don't tell my main game about you know <laughs> i so i really i still play heroes of storm a lot i really enjoy that i still play a lot of hearthstone i really like that a lot and i think that is i, I have a big magic background so hearthstone still makes me feel smart when i queue up i feel like i'm good at making card evaluation things and then i look like any gamer i play i love near automata for example i just finished that i thought it was brilliant um mm -hmm. so you know i i play kind of across the board so obviously this is a, a fast-growing industry you have secured some funding can you Tell us anything about how you are measuring your own success, what kind of goals you're setting for yourself as a company, what the, the challenges are, the competitors, the, the hurdles that you still have to clear. 
Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, unfortunately, I obviously can't share any metrics or anything, particularly because we are privately held and actually in the process of kind of you know closing another round of investments. But, you know, I think what I can say is sort of what do we aspire to be as a company? And that's really simple. You know, we aspire to be the best place ever to help people get better at games. That's our goal. That's what we want to do. And so, you know, when I kind of like, I guess, judge my success on a day-to-day basis, there's obviously business metrics, like did we sign that partnership or X customers or whatever. But, you know, I, I really like to kind of hang the success stories, you know, kind of like those are the things that make me feel good, both whether it's like getting a coach, like did 7597 place on NRG Honestly, like hearing, because I talk to these coaches all the time, it's hearing them say like, you know what, I had this part-time job or this full-time job and I hated it. You know, I was like working at GameSpot or, you know, Buffalo Wild Wings or whatever. And I always loved Overwatch and I could never you know, make it work professionally. And now like I have this job, this full-time job or this part-time job or whatever it is where I get to share what I'm really good at with other people. And I get to get paid for that. And that's amazing. And that that really is kind of like, I guess, the, the personal empathy success for me in this business. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I have long ago given up even thinking of getting good at games. So it might be too late for me. I have resigned myself to, to being bad at competitive games, but it's not too late for you, listener. And this is a, a service that might be a good answer for some people. So you can find out more about Gamer Sensei at gamersensei.com or on Twitter at Gamer Sensei app. And we appreciate it. William, good luck. Hey, Ben, it was an absolute pleasure. You guys have a wonderful day. You too, thanks. Okay, we'll be back in just a second with our fellow writer for The Ringer, Claire McNear. So Pokemon Go, just those two words conjure memories of the summer of 2016 Ah. (laughs) when the craze took the world by storm and then... Fairly quickly for most people, I think, passed by, but there are still some people for whom Pokemon Go is very much of the present and has never left their lives. And one of those people is our colleague at The Ringer, Claire McNear, who wrote about her continuing Pokemon Go obsession for The Ringer on the occasion of the game's one-year anniversary on Thursday. Hi, Claire. Hey. So you have incredible. not caught them all, I assume. But <laughs> I have you have, caught almost all of them. You've <laughs> caught many of them? How many of them have you caught? I have caught, uh, oh man, I have the numbers in the story. I think I've caught 229. Yep. Okay. Well, you are aware that you gotta catch them all, right? I, oh, listen, I am acutely aware of this. It, it keeps me up at night. <laughs> Other people don't take that instruction seriously. <laughs> They're probably saner, healthier individuals than me, but I'm following the marching orders. <laughs> How many are there now? So there are, hi, this is really, I'm going to have to reveal some embarrassing knowledge here. Um, There (laughs) are at present 238 total Pokemon that you can get, but I think it's six of them, seven of them that are region specific. They're the original release of them last summer. There was one that you could only get in North America. There's a kangaroo you can only get in Australia. There's like a weird bird that is only in Asia. And so I don't have those ones. That's the okay. So you've not been <laughs> continent hopping in some pursuit. I'm not to plan my vacations around the chance <laughs> of getting a kangaroo Pokemon, but. Uh. Yeah. Well, what is the, I guess, most embarrassing or you don't have to say it's embarrassing. You can take ownership and, and pride in, in your pursuit of Pokemon, it, but what, the greatest lengths that you've gone to, and you mentioned some of them in the story, I, but if you can summarize or, or pick one. Absolutely. I, uh, <laughs> this this I wrote about in the story, but I had heard through the internet, I keep an eye on certain Pokemon forums as very sane people like me do. And uh, oh yes, oh yes. Um, and somebody had reported that there was a Miltank, which is a very rare cow, um, <laughs> next to one of the, uh, the house office buildings. I live in Washington, D.C. And I actually immediately dropped everything I was doing and like summoned an Uber because they only appear for like 20 or 30 minutes at a time. I realized I saw like a crazy person talking about this but uh yeah i took an uber there and you know what i got the cow congrats (laughs) thank you friends and family might love me less but are you fighting your pokemons at all in the gyms in your piece you mentioned that uh, you're being bedeviled by ringer not ringer as in the ringer but like (laughs) 
ringer teens whose Pokemons are just juiced <laughs> up on like massive Pokesteroids and they just linger in the gyms and absolutely like clean the slate with whoever might approach. Have you fought your Pokemons or are you just kind of building them up? I, I mean, I'm most interested in, in the kind of obsessive collection aspect of right. this. Um, the other part of it is that to play Pokemon Go, you have to go out in public. You have to wander around. Right. You have to like expose yourself to the shame of the outside world. These people <laughs> watching you, grown adults, wander through the streets with, um, you know, trying to catch cartoon pigeons. But uh, the gyms in particular, you sort of have to stand in one place and just be like, all right, I'm going to stand in the corner of like Union Station, the big train station near where I live. And I'm just going to stand here and like play a video game out in the open. And I... I am rarely brave enough to <laughs> to go quite that far. And also the teenagers are really good at it, it turns out. I, I mean, I assume they're teenagers. They might be like eight-year-olds that are that are ruining my life. But uh, yeah, they just have these like super Pokemon that, um, I, you know, it's, it's hard. What do we know about the numbers? How many people are there out there like you who have not given up? <laughs> lot i mean it's people joke about it because they're like oh nobody plays pokemon go anymore and that's because there was sort of this like crazy blow up last summer where everyone i mean my friends who never play games my boyfriend who never plays iphone games like would not be caught dead doing that in public even he got kind of into this for a couple weeks after the launch last year and then most of those people sort of dropped off very quickly except for me (laughs) Um, but from what I understand, the numbers are actually still really strong. It's, some, it's something like a quarter of the people who were playing this time last year are, are still playing. Somewhere around 5 million daily active users is the number that wow. you see around, which is quite a lot for a mobile game. So it's actually still yeah. a really big game. It's just not the kind of supernova that it was last summer. Hmm. And now that we have some hindsight, we have some historical perspective on the madness of last summer, what is your favorite trend associated with Pokemon Go? Like the industry that built up around this game and the lengths that people would go to to play? Is there a particular trend that you remember most fondly from that period? <laughs> I mean, I, I loved kind of watching all the, the madness on Craigslist, the like creepy strangers on the internet being like, oh, get in my my car I'll help you catch <laughs> which I never did to be clear um, neither driver nor passenger but uh yeah I don't I mean I the game launched a few months after I moved to DC so I didn't really know DC that well and and this is like this will sound really sad maybe but it actually has been kind of an excuse for me to get out and like explore just like walk around by myself and sort of learn the area which has actually been kind of nice yeah and you've covered 300 plus miles according to your stats i have i have walked more than 300 miles with this stupid game (laughs) how many of those miles would you have walked without (laughs) the game was this just on your way to places i would say that the vast majority of those are on my way it's the kind of thing where like if i if i'm going out to a restaurant like walking to the coffee shop in my neighborhood or jumping into a cab I will just sort of like switch the game on and my boyfriend has not left me yet. So uh, there's that. <laughs> but he has left Pokemon Go. Yeah, he's uh, yeah, I don't think he's a very enthusiastic observer <laughs> at this point. But um... I, I would add that um, AOL dial up still has over two million subscribers. <laughs> so I would I would imagine that Pokemon I, I still has, a, has some <laughs> a, a ways to go. Well, how has the game? Obviously, the game was extremely buggy when it when it was in its flower of popularity how have recent updates improved the game or ha- or have they yeah i i would actually i mean i'm incredibly biased because i'm a year in the hole with this thing it's been like a not insignificant part of my last 12 months on earth for better or worse but i i think that it is actually a really great game and they fixed a lot of the problems it's all that kind of early glitchiness where every time you try to open it it would freeze or you just wouldn't register that you were walking around so you couldn't find things or catch pokemon that's mostly gone it's a little glitchy still but that's that's mostly over um possibly because they only have like a quarter of the players now <laughs> they've also made it it's possible to be much more strategic now. You can kind of evolve the Pokemon in a more strategic way and you have more options other than just like the dumb luck of coming across like a Snorlax on the street. So yeah, it's, it's, you get to make more choices uh, as a player and it's, it's actually a pretty fun game. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the the Pokemon meta has has changed the the competitive balance and and the tactics and and that was the thing that a lot of people said at the time. Like the game wasn't that great when it was right. super popular. There wasn't that much to do, right. but it was novel and people like Pokemon, and so they played for a while. And then maybe there wasn't enough to hook some people, and other people were hooked anyway. We we're talking to one of them, but. <laughs> What other features and incentives have been added to the game in the last year to keep you coming back? So they, there was a big update just a few weeks ago where they sort of redid the gym system. Um, and they, I think Niantic, the company that launched Pokemon, I think that they had kind of been pretty public about the fact that they didn't really love the way that the gyms worked. And the, the gyms theoretically should sort of be the heart of the game where people have to go out and stand there in public and hopefully not be totally embarrassed like me. But it, it did sort of lend itself to these eight-year-olds with, with the crazy Snorlax. Um, just taking over and squatting there for days and weeks at a time. And they they made it so that now there's more diversity of the sorts of creatures that can go there. And also they they introduced, um, I think they're called raid battles. I have not done much of this, but um, you can go in and you can try to capture like a rare boss. And I don't know, on, the, on these, these weird internet things that I, that I creep on. Um, people talk about meeting other players at them. And I suppose that's really nice, but I really, I, I don't think me meeting a bunch of like fifth graders would, would look really great. I don't know. <laughs> Did you have any positive encounters with strangers, even in the early days, or was it just sort of everyone going about their business and, and moving in the same circle, but not really interacting in your experience? Yeah, I, I don't really have any like heartwarming stories of, uh, of me. Like, you know, I it was fun when my actual friends were doing it and you'd see people on the streets in those, those early days, but then it was just sort of the, the hangers on like me left. Um, but I don't know, there was one time a few months ago that made me feel ever so slightly less terrible about myself that I was walking down the street and this guy in a suit, this like older guy in a suit had his phone out as people do. And I had seen that there was a very rare Pokemon, a wild Blastoise. This is a big wow game. I know, I know. Just up the street. And I was walking towards it and he was kind of coming at me away from it. And all of a sudden this guy just frantically doubles back and he races over and he catches the wild Blastoise and then he goes on his way. And I was like, okay, I'm not the only adult still <laughs> playing this. There's at least one more. Might be like a congressional aide. <laughs> Were you uh, a Pokemon person before this game? I mean, as a Good kid, question. As a kid I, I obsessively collected the cards, but I, I don't, I didn't even know anyone who actually like played the game. Like I was vaguely aware that, that you were supposed to play a game with the cards, but I just saw them as, as things to collect. Mm-hmm. So I guess I've been at this for a while, but I stopped. I will say I stopped between like fourth grade and July, 2016. <laughs> what, what is the, what is the core mechanic that like elemental feedback loop that has kept you in this game for a year <laughs> I I mean it, it I, I joke about it but but truly I am obsessively trying to catch them all um, and I'm really afraid that they're going to launch more Pokemon they, they do this in generations so they released a second generation I don't know maybe six months ago which is why there are more than the original 150 there are 200 something and I'm I live in fear of them releasing the next generation because it's going to doom me to at least another year of this game. It's been fun, but I know that I will not be able to to just wrap it up um, if there's still Pokemon to catch. So there's like a theoretical end in sight for me, but. I think a lot of players play for the sake of the gyms and the battles, and I'm just sort of an obsessive collector. (laughs) Has this been a a gateway to anything else for you? Has it gotten you hooked on any other sort of game or or mobile experience, or is it just a a singular pastime? It's just just the one for me. I I don't know. I have a sickness. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it is a really fun game, and I've really enjoyed it. But it is kind of my one one gaming outlet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there was a lot of speculation of course given the success of this game that we'd see tons of copycats and that these games would be everywhere and it would just be a a phenomenon that that kept repeating itself and that hasn't really been the case and a former guest of ours sarah needleman wrote something in the wall street journal on the anniversary about how there hasn't really been another augmented reality hit of the magnitude
Institute of, of Pokemon. And I don't know whether you have any thoughts on why that is or, or what the alchemy of this particular game is that has made it so sticky for so many people and, and prevented something else from, from claiming its crown. Yeah, I I mean, I think she actually made the point in that article, if I'm remembering right, that, you know, why, while Pokemon Go is an AR game, you can see the Pokemon superimposed over the stuff around you, but it's not like it really engages with it. Like, you know, if you, it's not like the Pokemon are like in a tree or in the river or, you know, jumping on the counter or something. They It's just sort of a location thing more than anything and you can sort of put the live background in there but otherwise the game is not really engaging with with that sort of data i i don't know i i would love to see more ar games and maybe they they too would hook me it's certainly if it didn't have the kind of map functionality i don't think i would like i don't think if i could just play it on my couch i don't think I would in a weird way, even though that would actually be easier. But there's something about the kind of inherent challenge of it that makes it fun, which also makes it really embarrassing if you're like me and are, don't want to be seen in public playing this game. But um, <laughs> but as you can tell, there's been a lot of self-loathing in my last year. But um... <laughs> <laughs> has, that, has that worn off at all? Have you become conditioned to, to that to the point that you don't feel it as acutely as you once would have? I mean... You know, obviously the the benefits have won out here in that I just really like the game. But um, no, I would say no. I, I think I told the story in my in my uh, in my piece today about this. But I um, I was given the wearable that Niantic has marketed to go. Oh yeah, Pokemon tell us go. about this. Yeah, and it's basically like a little button. It looks just like a Happy Meal toy. It really does, but it looks kind of like a Pokemon ball. So it's got the sort of red and white. And it's got a big button in the middle. And the way it works is you it uses Bluetooth and it syncs up with your phone and your um, your Pokemon Go app. And it works actually remarkably well. And it will basically, without you using your phone, so your phone can be away in your pocket, will detect when there's a Pokemon around or what's called a Pokestop, which is where you get the items. And then it will light up and vibrate and you can just sort of press the button and it will um, either successfully get get the thing or it won't um mm. so that totally blows your cover i guess if you're if you're wearing that right right yeah i i usually i keep it hidden in my pocket but it like it's it's vibrations are incredibly violent so i've like many times i've been like sitting in the back of a cab and like the cab driver is like giving me like worried looks in the back and the, and the thing is like <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, one of my more uh, embarrassing, worrying moments was I was walking around the huge park sort of around the U.S. Capitol building one day, one early evening, and they had closed, I think, part of the park because there was a suspicious package, which happens all the time because they're tourists and they leave their backpacks or whatever. And it ended up being nothing. But they had closed the park for or part of the park for a little while. And there were Capitol Police officers standing all around. And I had to kind of go right by them and was asking, like, oh, you know, which part's open? Which, you know, where can I go from here? And this woman, this Capitol Police officer, sees this, like, blinking trigger in my hands <laughs> as, as my, my, my Pokemon Go Plus is like, oh. Oh, you know, there's a category nearby or whatever it was. And uh, and I had to explain that, in fact, I was playing the game that she thought everybody had stopped playing that was for children um, and was definitely not going to set off a bomb. So, <laughs> Well, we wish you luck in year two of your Pokemon quest. And you can read Claire at The Ringer. You can find her on Twitter at Claire underscore McNear. Please let her know if you see a Mareep anywhere <laughs> in the Beltway area please do <laughs> urgently contact me um all right well thank you so much guys yeah thank you all right take care okay every boss has three forms this podcast has three segments we'll be back in just a minute with our third and final guest economist ernie tedeschi All right, our next guest on June 23rd tweeted, Bought Witcher 3 for sale on Steam, and I'm now ready to drop out of the labor force. <laughs> he is, however, still employed. He is an economist in the private sector, formerly of the Treasury Department. And we wanted to bring him on because there's been a study that's been making the rounds on Economist Twitter this week and this month, and really for the last several months in response to a study by a, a group of four economists 
suggests that suggests that young men have fallen out of the workforce because games have gotten good and games are so good that men just don't want to go back to work. And some of you may have seen the article in the New York Times earlier this week, provocatively titled Why Some Men Don't Work. Video games have gotten really good. So I know there's been a lot of discussion about this and some back and forth and some quibbles with whether this thesis actually holds together. So we wanted to talk to our guest, Ernie Tedeschi, about that. So Ernie, welcome. And if there's anything that I haven't summarized accurately here, are there any other claims that the paper makes or or is there a better way to put what its central takeaway is? Uh, no, I, so I think that's accurate. And they think that young men are uniquely sensitive to the quality of video games over the last 10 years. Video games are a neoliberal scam to destroy the working <laughs> instincts of our young men. <laughs> Your thoughts. <laughs> Well, as a gamer, I hope not. <laughs> what is the evidence that they put forth for this? Because I, I think we all agree video games are good. I would agree yeah. that they have gotten better. But the leap from that to this is uh, affecting the economy on a macro level, given everything else that has gone on in the world over the, the years that this study covers, I think is one that maybe provokes some skepticism, which doesn't mean it's it's incorrect. But what are the main data points that they present or purport to present to show that this is true? So the, the, the paper has both an empirical or a data-centered part of it, and then it has a theoretical part of it where they build this sort of theoretical model about how people gain happiness from different types of leisure and how technology, when it makes leisure better, might end up affecting things like labor market outcomes as a result of that. So, uh, so in economics, we call that a leisure shock. So on the data side, the first part of the paper, they're basing their conclusions on a couple of different data points. They look at what are called time use surveys. So the American Time Use Survey uh, has been done every year since 2003. And they just look at what young men, which they define as ages 21 to 30, record on the American Time Use Survey, uh, the number of hours per week they record playing games. There's actually a mm -hmm. category called playing games. Now, they, they make the point that in the, in the Time Use Survey, the category playing games can mean a lot of different things. It can mean playing video games. It can mean playing board games. It's really funny when you dig into the data, it can also mean things like hiding Easter eggs and hiding Matzo <laughs> at Passover. Um, Hide and seek. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and the, the authors of the paper, I think, fairly say, you know, there's been an increase in this category since 2004, which is when they start looking at the data. And they think it's probably not due to an increase in Scrabble, which I, I agree with them. That's probably <laughs> a reasonable uh, inference to make. So to give you an idea of the magnitude that we're talking about here, so among all young men age 21 to 30 using this time use survey data gaming and so what they're inferring is video gaming increased by 1.4 hours a week between the 2004-2007 baseline that they're using and then the 2012-2015 sample um, mm -hmm. so that's an that's almost double the amount of time per week spent on video gaming and then they break it down further they look at men with jobs and men without jobs and among young men who are employed in those two time periods, they played more video games, but they only played about an hour more in video games per week between those two time periods. Among mm -hmm. young men who were not employed, they played two and a half hours more video games per week, significantly more. And so they sort of use this data as the baseline. They, they, they dig into it a little bit more in the paper. And then from that, they build this model where they, where they argue that men are playing more video games. They're getting more utility out of video games. Because they're getting more happiness out of the video games that they're playing, they don't feel the need to go out and work as much or to get as many jobs as they did before. Uh huh. Yeah. So the preliminary findings here have been out for a while. The paper just came out this week, but we alluded to this idea on an earlier episode with yeah. Max Reed when we talked about Hearthstone because he was telling us how he got hooked on Hearthstone during a period when he was briefly unemployed. 
unemployed. And yeah. it, it did not prevent him from joining the workforce again, but it made his time out of the workforce a, a little more pleasant, I guess. So <laughs> that is maybe the, the central question here is right. whether it's just that young men are unemployed more often and they are spending some of their free time playing games or whether they are actually avoiding the workforce because of the gaming. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And and so I think the critique of the paper, and, and I should say, first of all, I'm a video gamer myself. My sort of gut reaction is to be sympathetic to this, to the thesis in this paper, because I, you know, it just kind of makes intuitive sense, I think, for a lot of video gamers. And also, I think that when you know other video gamers, like we all know the guy who played way too many video games and was probably neglecting his hygiene, you know, maybe not studying as much. Uh, I knew a guy who played so much Civilization in college, he almost failed out. And so there, there are all these anecdotes and you're like, oh, yeah, like that sort of makes sense. But when you start thinking more rigorously about it, you also think about all the people you know who play video games who don't have those problems, who are, who are perfectly able to hold steady jobs and, and do fine in, in, in the labor force. And then you take a step back and you look at the 30,000 foot labor market data. And, and I don't think that there's a silver bullet necessarily yet against this paper. But I'm skeptical for a lot of reasons. Number, I mean, I mean, I think that the biggest thing is that you know, since 2004 and uh, 2015, when they're comparing these different young male cohorts, you know, we had the biggest recession since the Great Depression. Um, mm-hmm. And recessions affect everybody, but they particularly affect low-skilled workers, i.e., young men, some of whom haven't made it through college yet. And or or others who are just out of college and haven't really established much of a work history yet. So if if you were just if you before even considering this thesis, if you were going to think about the the population who would be most affected by the Great Recession, you would say, oh well, it would be young people, right? Because they don't have the skills, they don't have they don't have the work history. You know, last hired, first fired. And indeed, when you look at things like, um, you know, I just tweeted earlier today, the average number of hours worked by young men age 21 to 30, you know, the same definition that they use in the paper. And it fell markedly, both in both after 2001. Remember, we had the dot-com bust after 2001. It fell, it rose again, and it, and it, it recovered about halfway to where it had been before 2001, and then the 2008 recession hit, and it really fell markedly mm-hmm. after that. So I think that the story here is that young men were hurt by the 2001 recession. They were on their way to recovery, but they didn't quite make it before then the 2008 recession hit, and that was the big one. But if you look at the data since you know the, the sort of bottom of that recession, say in 2009 or 2010, young male hours have been recovering. And as a matter of fact, they've been recovering at the same pace that they recovered both after the 1991 recession leading into 2000 and after the 2001 recession. So I don't see anything that's different about this day and age, you know, the post-2008 world versus, you know, other recent history that would lead me to suggest that there's something different going on here um, that's uniquely affecting young men. Um, I think we just had a very large recession, and it takes a long time, particularly for young, mostly unskilled workers, to recover from that. There's a lot of different numbers about the percentage of gamers that are female. I've seen anywhere from high 30s to 48%, leaving aside the different ways you can then differentiate those numbers between hardcore gamers and uh, gamers that just play mobile, gamers that play console games, gamers that play PC games. Why, according to this paper, are video games specifically a vulnerability to young men and not similarly aged women who play just as many video games or play mobile games, for instance? So I think that's a good question. So, So they use this same time survey data to show that among young women age 21 to 30, their game, you know, what they call gaming and what the economists in this paper are interpreting as video gaming hasn't increased very much over the last uh, 10 years. So they are taking that empirical finding and then uh, interpreting that to mean that video gaming has a unique effect on young men 
versus young women. Now, part of that is because they're looking at changes. So it could be that, you know, whatever estimate you have of the percent of gamers that are women, just like that hasn't changed over the last 15 years, or women are just playing the same amount of games they did before. That could be compatible with the findings in the paper, or it could be that the time use survey data that they're using is flawed in some way. And, you know, the American Time Use Survey is a government survey. It's very well done. But all surveys, you know, have sample error. And um, particularly when you're trying to estimate something as big as, you know, the time use trends of the entire American population, and then you're focusing on a very specific subpopulation of that, you know, there can be errors that arise from that. So that's that's not out of the question either. Um, and kind of like a this is a related question, but why... Mm -hmm. Why Americans? Uh, it seems to me that video games are extremely popular in Korea, yep. uh, where the where the esports scene is absolutely is absolutely burgeoning. You know, leading the world in that regard. In Japan, in China, um, so why here? Why is it, why are does this paper argue that it is particularly a problem for American men of this age cohort? So they don't really ad address that, and I'm sort of curious about that too. When you look at the labor market outcomes for young men in, say, Japan, they, had, they didn't have nearly the decline in employment that America did after the Great Recession. Even though Japan has been in, you know, they, they've had stagnant economic growth since the early 1990s. You know, they would seem to be the kind of country where you have a lot of video gamers and you have a stagnant economy and worries about lack of dynamism, lack of wage growth. Um, it would seem to be sort of the sort of the perfect test case for this theory, right? That you would have young men just right. more and more leaving the labor force, and yet we don't see that in Japan. In fact, their labor force participation rate for young men is higher than it is here, and didn't seem to be affected nearly as much by the Great Recession. Same thing in Europe as well. Other advanced European countries didn't have nearly the declines that we did. Now, Korea is an interesting case. Their detailed data is not as good, or, or I haven't found it yet, um, to be able to kind of dig in and compare very specific people. But for young men, Korean employment has declined by more than it did in the United States. Uh, so people see this and they say, oh, well, you know, Korea, where esports is so popular and where online gaming has been such a phenomenon, you know, clearly, you know, this confirms the video game theory. But I'm not sure about that because now employment in Korea peaked in 1989, you know, rather than in, in the early 2000s uh, when this paper is looking at. Korea has the added complication that they have conscription. They have mandatory military service. And there is interaction between mandatory military service and when you go to college. And in the 1990s, Korea actually opened up spots for college and university to young men and women where they had beforehand tried to restrict college access. Uh, you know, they tried to cap the number of people that, who go to college. And they have a culture where it is seen as absolutely imperative that everybody gets higher education. And so it's, I, I think that they have one of the highest college graduation rates in the world as a result of that. So, so both when you look at the timing of Korea and when you think about sort of the cultural differences between Korea and the rest of the world, there's still some reason for skepticism that this is a video game story with even them, right? This could be other right. things going on with Korea. And so at the end of the day, you just have to step back and wonder, you know, why America, first of all? Right. Why now? Why not before 2000? The paper only goes back to 2004. But, you know, I've done charts that show that things like young male employment, young male job finding, you know, would, would be hurt by things like recessions before 2000. But they'd always recover back, even as, you know, you know, even as the NES was released, even as the Super NES right. was released and, the, you know, Genesis and video game systems before 2000 clearly didn't seem to have much an effect on young male job finding and young male employment. So something, you know, if you accept this hypothesis, something must have changed after 2000, whether it was the internet, whether it was the quality of the games. And, you know, you can construct a story about that, but the, but the more sort of, the more caveats that you have to add to the story, I think the less convincing it becomes over time.
Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we might get to a point when we all have holodecks in our living rooms and they actually work and are affordable and real life is boring and we never want to work or do anything but game. That that day could be coming, but it's not totally clear whether it has already arrived. But if you want to follow the ongoing research and debate about this, it's been fun for me to eavesdrop on economists talking about this among themselves. And you can find Ernie on on Twitter at Ernie Tedeschi. We thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, that will do it for this marathon episode. We will be back with another episode, as always, next Friday. Jason, enjoy the end of Binge Mode. I will talk to you then. Ah, and now my watch is almost (laughs) done. We will be back next week.